My name is Kyle, and I am one of the pastors here. And we are in a series during this Easter tide, the season of Easter, where we are looking at the resurrection appearances of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And now we we turn to Thomas. Let me pray for us. God, as you made yourself known right in the midst of your disciples that first Easter Sunday evening, and then a week later, would you make yourself known this morning through your word and your sacrament, and make yourself known in all your saving power, we ask that the Lamb might have the rewards of his sufferings. Amen. Well, I wonder if you get FOMO. I wonder if you know what FOMO is. Fear of missing out. And we all know what that's like, right? You go to the big game, you've paid for the tickets, and then you sit there, and it doesn't matter how bad you have to use the restroom, you are not getting up, right? Or you go to the concert, and you go early, and you are there, and you squeeze your way up to the front row, the front row of a U2 concert. Uh, you are not going anywhere for seven hours, right? And you have planned ahead on how you were going to navigate that, like fasted from any kind of liquid for days. Uh, you may pay, pass out, but you're, if you miss out, you're going to miss out by passing out and not by going to the restroom. Am I right? We know fear of missing out. You know the, 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 the little kid. We all know the little kid. And they start kind of wiggling, you know? Do you need to go to the potty? No. no. Well, yeah, but I'm not, right? Fear of missing out. Because the reality is sometimes we can miss out. Thomas is like the biggest example of missing out. Where was he? Verse 25 tells us that when Jesus appeared to his disciples on that Sunday evening, there were only 10 of them there. Judas is gone, and now we see that Thomas wasn't around. And the disciples immediately, they come to him and they say, we have seen the Lord. In fact, they said it over and over again is the sense that, that the Greek tenses tell us. We have seen the Lord, Thomas. We have seen the Lord. And yet Thomas responds, how? Well, because he's an ancient gullible person, right? Because we all know ancients were gullible and they believed anything. He just said, wonderful, amazing. Of course, people rise from the dead all the time, right? No. He said, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. This is why we call him Doubting Thomas. But I, I got to be honest, I think Thomas gets a bad rap, like a real bad rap. Because Thomas, he's, he's not the only doubter. I mean, all the disciples at some point doubted the, mes uh, the message about Jesus' resurrection. Thomas isn't, isn't the, the only doubter, but he is the quintessential doubter. But to call it doubt, that's kind of a misnomer, isn't it? Doubt implies questioning. Doubt implies uncertainty. But Thomas, he's not uncertain. I mean, listen to him. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, I will never believe. 
Thomas isn't doubting. He's unbelieving. Let's be clear. I mean, Thomas isn't, Thomas isn't questioning the veracity or the validity of the resurrection. He's denying it. People don't rise from the dead, and neither did Jesus. You are all insane. Thomas. And yet I still think he gets a bad rap. I think he gets a bad rap because we call him Doubting Thomas. That is the label that the church has put on him. But Thomas, he doubts for one week. It says eight days in your Bible. You should know that the Jews, they counted days a little different than we do. It's actually one week later. It would be seven days on our count. So it's seven days later. For one week he doubts. But then, in verse 28, Thomas makes the clearest, boldest, most exalted confession of anyone in all of the Gospels. My Lord and my God. And he did that for eternity. So I think we should probably call him confessing Thomas or believing Thomas. Nevertheless, it does raise a question. How does Thomas go from being so certain that Jesus didn't rise from the dead to being so certain that he is Lord and God? And I think that's a good question for us this morning. It's a really important question for us this morning because it's a very, very, very apropos question. Some of you are in here this morning. <laughs> And you are questioning the validity of the resurrection. The claims about Jesus Christ and who he is. And so the question that you need to ask is, is how, how does Thomas move and how might I move from a place of absolute skepticism to a place of absolute worship, adoration, and confession? From total uncertainty to certainty. And if that's not you here this morning, then you know someone like that. And even if you aren't questioning the validity of the resurrection, the reality is, is that we all, at some time or another, we question the truth about who God is and who he is for us. We question his love and care. We question the, the ethics that he puts forward in life. And so how can we go from a place of uncertainty and unbelief and doubt to a place of belief. Well, Thomas teaches us two things, I think, about this journey. That this journey from going from doubt to belief or from unbelief to belief, from doubt to faith, this journey involves two things. It involves, one, accepting the evidence and, two, receiving the love. If you are going to move from unbelief to belief, you have to, one, accept the evidence, and two, receive the love. So let's look at those. First, you have to accept the evidence. I mean, why doesn't Thomas believe? He tells us, verse 25, unless I see. He doesn't believe because he hadn't seen. In other words, what Thomas wants is empirical evidence. He wants to see and taste and touch. He wants to have it proven to him in his own existential experience through his sensory perception. And that's why I think more than anyone else, modern people can relate to Thomas. 
Because many of us think, well, I'm a modern scientific person. I don't believe that people rise from the dead. I trust in rationalism and science and things that are empirically provable. But I don't believe things that you can't, that you can't verify. One of the biggest proponents of this kind of objection to Christianity is Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins is a, um, he's a professor at Oxford University, emeritus now. Uh, He um, studied kind of uh, evolution and evolutionary science. Uh, He is also, um, he is also absolutely committed. He thinks that Religious belief is absolutely destructive to society. And he has committed his life to convincing people of that and to turn them away from it. Um, which I actually really respect him for. He really, he has conviction. And he's acting on it. But Dawkins, he says uh, in his, uh, in this, he put together this uh, documentary called Enemies of Reason. And he says this in the documentary, there are two ways to look at the world, through faith and superstition, or through the rigors of logic, observation, and evidence. In other words, through reason. So according to Dawkins, there are two ways to approach the world. There are uh, people who are rational people and scientific people, and then there are people who are superstitious people and people who just believe. And Thomas, it would seem, is actually, even though he's this ancient, and we would expect him as moderns to be very gullible and not rationalistic or scientific, we would expect Thomas to be maybe gullible, but he actually looks like the latter of these two. Thomas wants to see the world through the rigors of logic and observation and evidence. In other words, Thomas wants to use his reason. And Richard Dawkins, he actually gets this. In his most famous book, um, The God Delusion, he, he, he comments on Thomas. He says this, Faith is blind trust in the absence of evidence, even in the teeth of evidence. The story of doubting Thomas is told not so that we shall admire Thomas, which Dawkins thinks we should, but so that we can admire the other apostles in comparison. Thomas demanded evidence. Nothing is more lethal for certain kinds of meme than a tendency to look for evidence. The other apostles, whose faith was so strong that they did not need evidence, are held up to us as worthy of imitation. In other words, he's saying what the Bible is trying to do and what the story is trying to do is undermine our sense that we need reason and logic and evidence and saying, you should just have blind faith. And, you know, it's not just Dawkins who thinks this way. Like, actually, lots of Christians think this way. When somebody has intellectual objections to the faith, they say, well, you just have to believe. You just have to have faith. Really, we're laying out the world in the same way. But I want to ask the question, is that really what's going on here? I mean, is it true that on the one hand, the apostles have blind faith, and on the other hand, Thomas has no faith, and he's committed to logic and reason? I would suggest that both the apostles and Thomas, one, have evidence I mean, the apostles saw the risen Lord a week earlier. And they say in verse 25 to him, we have seen the Lord. In other words, Thomas has 10 eyewitnesses who saw the Lord come to him, whom he knows, who say, we have seen the Lord. That's evidence. 
You say, well, wait, wait, he didn't have that personally. But listen, let me ask you a question. If you only lived according to or accepted knowledge that was not unmediated, how many things would you actually do or how would you live? Look at you. You all sat down in these chairs. You didn't build these chairs. You trusted the fact that somebody built these and that they actually will hold you. And you didn't test out every one and your particular one before you sat down, did you? No. And, and your car. I mean, you trust what the mechanic says when the mechanic says that it needs this thing and this is why this is happening, right? Unless, did you go under with them and watch them put it in every time? You trust that your plumbing was installed the right way. Very few of us built our own homes. And that it's there. And, and you know what? You've got good reason to do that. There's actually evidence because there are expert or eyewitnesses telling you so. And if you're a scientist, guess what? You didn't build all those machines in your laboratory or all the beakers. You didn't test and make sure that their lines weren't off. Like, most of knowledge in life involves a serious degree of trust. And that's not irrational. That's actually how the world works. See, what, what Thomas has and what you and I have is we have all the evidence we need because we have eyewitness accounts in the Gospels. That's why John goes on to write in verses 30 and 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He's saying, look, the things that are written here are to give you enough. You have enough. Plenty. Their eyewitnesses splattered throughout the Gospels. Their names are hidden there so that people can go and look and ask them, did this happen? And then you have to describe like the rise of the early church and how we get from Judaism to Christianity if it's not for the Jesus that's presented in the Gospels. I mean, and then just take this, like any historical thing, like you haven't been to the moon and yet, you probably believe that someone's landed on the moon. And if you don't, I'd love to talk to you. I mean, I don't want to convince you of anything. I just think it'd be an interesting coffee. Um, most of you believe that Julius Caesar was assassinated. Were you there? Did you see it? What about Abraham Lincoln? I mean... Most rational knowledge in the world is mediated. And the question is, is do we have enough? And we have enough. That's why Jesus says to Thomas in verse 29, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe because they have enough. So that's the first thing I think is both the apostles and Thomas have evidence and that faith is not opposed to evidence. And actually, that leads us to the second point, and that's this, that both unbelievers and believers, both the apostles and Thomas, have faith. See, Dawkins presents it like it's reason and faith, like you have reason, it's reason or faith, facts or fiction. But is that really, is it really that clear cut? I mean, think about it. Thomas had a lot of faith at work in his unbelief. 
In order to deny that Jesus rose from the dead, Thomas had to believe with certainty that people don't rise from the dead. He had to be committed to that belief. In order to believe that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, he had to believe, he had to believe of a conviction that was unwavering that Messiahs don't get crucified. And if they are, they're just would-be Messiahs, but they're not real Messiahs and Saviors. See, Thomas has an awful lot of faith going on in this. In fact, any time, any time you doubt position A, it's always because you have confidence in position B. And that is a faith position. We all sit from a place of faith position. I mean, even if you say, well, let's, let's take this. Thomas, he had to believe without a doubt that his faculties, his sense, sense faculties were more reliable than the other apostles. But who's to say that they are? I mean, he, how can he be confident that his eyes are really better than Peter's? Or, or, his, or, his, or his senses are better than, than John's? You see, he has an awful lot of confidence. Confidence in himself. Confidence in his ability to reason. And even if you say that uh, uh, things have to be empirically verifiable to exist, well, that assumes something, that in order for something to exist, it has to be empirically verifiable. That's a faith commitment. You can't prove that. You can't even prove laws of logic that get you there. It's a faith commitment. So we are all, we are all operating under these faith commitments. That's why Albert Einstein said, I cannot conceive of a scientist without profound faith. You've heard the story about the dead man that walks into the psychiatrist's office. You, you know about this guy, right? So he walks into the psychiatrist's office and he's sitting there. It sounds like a really bad joke. It is. I'm just going to warn you. So you walk into psychi- the dead man walks into the psychiatrist's office and he says, Doc, I'm dead. And the doc's sitting there looking at him. He's like, no, I think you're delusional. You're not dead. And so he's working with this guy forever, and he's like talking with him, and he's talking through it, and he's trying to think about all these angles that he can convince this dead guy that he's really not dead, that he's alive. And finally, he goes, I've got it. He asks him, he goes, they ask the dead man, he goes, do dead men bleed? And the doc says, or I'm sorry, and the, the patient says, well, no, I'm reasoning through this. Their, their blood is not pumping anymore. Their heart's not working. Then dead men don't bleed. And the doc says, all right, stick out your finger. The guy sticks out his finger, and the doc grabs a little pin and pricks his finger. And then all of a sudden, this bright red piece of blood, just drop of blood, comes to the surface. And the doc starts laughing. And the guy starts laughing. And then the guy looks at the doc, the psychiatrist, and he says, what do you know? Dead men do bleed. You can have all the evidence in the world, but there are faith commitments that actually dictate how you interpret that evidence. Thomas has all the evidence in the world, but there are faith commitments that dictate how he interprets the evidence. See, if you doubt, there is some faith commitment, like that dead man's faith commitment, the fact that he thought that he was dead, that deluded man's faith commitment, that 
that dictates how he interprets the evidence. So maybe for you it's naturalistic materialism. And you're convinced of that. That the only things in this world are, are, uh, have, to, have, to, like, have to exist in some kind of physical form. Uh, and therefore you really don't believe in love. Not in any significant way. Uh, or maybe you believe that everything that exists can and has to be empirically verifiable. Well, that's a faith commitment. Or maybe you aren't a naturalistic materialist. I don't think Thomas was. Maybe it's expectations about God. See, I think that's what Thomas had. See, he knew what the Messiahs were supposed to be like, and he knew how God was supposed to save Israel, and this just wasn't the way. And maybe for you, it's something like this. I tried Christianity, and... It obviously didn't work for me, and so it can't be true. But that assumes that for Christianity to be true, it's got to make you happy. That God exists to make you happy, and that that's actually like the ultimate purpose. But that's a faith commitment. And that God couldn't be doing something beyond your happiness or have a greater goal in it all. You see, we have these expectations that cause us to to bend the way or to receive the evidence in a different light, throw the way that we understand it. See, Thomas has evidence. He just can't accept it. And yet, there he is in the midst of the disciples. You ever think about that? I mean, the text says that as soon as the disciples heard a week earlier, they come to Thomas and they say, we have seen the Lord. And then they kept on telling him, we have seen the Lord. He, he missed the resurrection on Easter. He gets told the news. He hears the gospel on Easter and he just doesn't believe. And yet, a week later, where is he? Back at church on a Sunday in the midst of the gathered people of God. That's some of you. You were here on Easter and you heard the gospel and yet you still, you don't believe, but you're back. Why are you here? I think you're here for the same reason that Thomas was there. That even though you doubt, even though you don't believe, you, you know that there's something that you were looking for. Something deep down that you still haven't found. I think you were looking for love. And that brings us to the second point. You not only have to accept the evidence to overcome these doubts, actually more importantly, you have to receive the love. Well, a popular uh, theologian, um, pastor that I, I appreciate greatly is a guy named Paul Zoll. And Paul Zoll uh, has this statement where he said, people, he, he said this, and it, it's stuck with me ever since he said it. I think about it all the time. He said, people are conservative or liberal based on who loved them the best. I want you to think about that. I think that that actually has so much more truth than we want to admit. See, we think it's all rational. But I would suggest to you, like the Bible says, we think a whole lot with our hearts. And it's those who we have been loved by and therefore who we love that, 
that we find their arguments and their positions more plausible. You see, what we need deep down is not arguments. We also need, even deeper than that, we need love. We need to be loved. Now, that's not to say that, that, that arguments or rational uh, thinking or any of those things are logical. I'm not against any of that. And any of you who've listened to the first half of the sermon or know me at all know that. Uh, I love the life of the mind, but the life of the mind tells me when I look around at the world and in observation that actually it's the life of the heart that has a more influential focus, influential power in our lives. What Thomas needs is he needs to be loved. He needs to be overwhelmed by love, and it's love that pursues him in that room that day. Did you see that when Jesus comes, the first thing he does is he, he appears in this room with locked doors to the disciples, and he says, peace be upon you. And then right after that, he says, put your finger here, Thomas. See my hands, Thomas. Put out your hand and place it in my side, Thomas. How did Jesus know? We hadn't seen Jesus for a week. The disciples didn't go complaining about Thomas to Jesus. He just knew. And why is Jesus there? The only thing he does in this scene, besides saying peace be upon you to all the apostles, the only thing he does is have an interaction with Thomas. Do you know why Jesus is there? He's there for Thomas. Not to scold him or to shame him, but because he loves him. He says, Thomas, I'm pursuing you. And all your doubts and all your unbelief, I am pursuing you. I am here for you. And I'm not leaving without you. One of my favorite movies growing up, this says a lot about my upbringing that you need to erase from your mind right after this. But one of my favorite movies growing up was um, National Lampoon's Vacation. And uh, there's just something about a comedic family that, that resonates with me. Anyway, in National Lampoon's uh, Christmas Vacation, you know, Clark W. Griswold, he goes across the country, and they have all these kind of adventures. And it is, it's an amazing, crazy people die, ants die, you know, that kind of thing, trip. And they go all the way across the country and they get to Wally World. And Wally World, this is why they're traveling, is shut down. It's closed. And they sit there and they're like, you have to let us in. We have been through all this. We've driven 2,500 miles. We are here to ride the, the Twisted Colossus. And we are not leaving until we ride the Twisted Colossus, Right? They are all the way across just for that. They're like, there is no way I'm putting these kids back in this car and going back without having done that. And I was like, we have gone this far. It, it's like Jesus is saying to Thomas, I think, in the same way, we have come this far, Thomas, and I am not leaving without you. There's no way I'm going away. There's just no way I'm going back to the Father without you. I am here for you, so put your hand in my side and touch my hands because I'm here for you, Thomas. 
Even though you don't need it, even though you should need it, I am here for you because I love you. Colleague down uh, RUF campus minister down at UCLA, Matt Trexler, he's come and preached here before. He tells a story about um, tabling on campus and uh, and being next to like the the atheist club, and they're there next to the atheist club, and the president of the atheist club is like making fun of them, and they're just like, oh okay, you know, and they're trying to be kind about it and that kind of thing, but the whole time they're being kind of um, ridiculed, and so they just invite them. They say, come on to RUF. Why don't you come and see what it's about? And so um, the president of the Atheist Club like shows up and he's in the back. And he said he came there kind of with this extreme kind of skepticism and doubt and he was there to like, you know, he was there basically to, um, to tell them how ridiculous they were. And yet, uh, and at the end of that time, he found love. Why are you here this morning? If you came on Easter, if you've heard the gospel and you still don't believe, and you're still doubting, why are you here? I think there's something that you want, but I think there's something a greater reason why you're here. I think you're here because Jesus is pursuing you. I think love is pursuing you. Like love was pursuing Thomas to transform him. Which is the second thing that we see. Jesus love not only pursues Thomas, it also transforms Thomas. Notice Jesus says, put your finger here and see my side. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Why the wounds? Why does he say, touch my wounds, Thomas? Well, I think the most obvious answer to that is that Thomas said, unless I see. And yet still, couldn't Jesus have gone bigger? Like, Thomas, check out this Lamborghini. Cars haven't even been invented, right? That's kind of what we expect Jesus to do. Like, go big. Why didn't he just perform some like crazy awesome miracle that would have like blown his mind and that would have been it? Why does he say touch my wounds? Because I think that Jesus wanted Thomas not to know about him, but to know him. And he is love. And he's saying, Thomas, come and touch my wounds. This is my love. And this is how you were made. You know, it was on the sixth day that God created humanity. On the sixth day, and do you know how he created? He created Adam. And then he created Eve. Do you know how he created Eve? He wounded Adam. It was out of Adam's bleeding side that his bride was created, the mother of all the living. And here we have the second Adam appearing to his church. And he says, touch my wounds. Because when he shows 
Thomas is bleeding side, he wants to show him how he actually created his bride. The church. The mother of all the living. And he's saying, Thomas, I want you to know who I am. I am love. And I want you to know, I want you to know who you are. Because how was it? How was it that Adam was able to say to Eve, Behold, alas, wow, you are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He said that because Eve was created out of his bleeding side. And Jesus, he says to us, you and me, the church, his body. You are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And therefore, when you deny me, you deny yourself. When you disbelieve who I am, you don't even know who you are. This is why I think we are having such an identity crisis in the church and outside the church because we don't know who our maker and our husband is. And so we don't know who we are anymore. We're all at sea. And Jesus wants to say, I am love. And you, Thomas, are loved. I am love. And you are the beloved one. That is who you are. Thomas is transformed by these wounds that prove to us that his name to us is love. I'm from Memphis, Tennessee. In Memphis, Tennessee, there's a very famous recording studio called Sun Studio. Many, many, many famous albums have been recorded there. Uh, Elvis was recorded there. Uh, but um, one of my favorite songs that was recorded there was recorded by U2 and B.B. King. B.B. King being from Memphis. It's a song called When Love Comes to Town. It's this blues song that's... Uh, that they wrote, and, and the lyrics go right this, I was a sailor, I was lost at sea. I was under the waves before love rescued me. I was a fighter, I could turn on a thread. Now I stand accused of the things I've said. When love comes to town, I'm going to jump that train. When love comes to town, I'm going to catch that flame. Maybe I was wrong to ever let you down, but I did what I did before love came to town. And then the last uh, verse of the Song says, I was there when they crucified my Lord. I held the scabbard when the soldier drew his sword. I threw the dice when they pierced his side. But I've seen love conquer the great divide. I think that's Thomas's song. Maybe I was wrong to ever let you down. But I did what I did before love came to town. And now... Thomas has seen love conquer the great divide. From unbelief to belief. From doubt to faith. From hard skepticism to knowing that he is loved. What about you? Have you been transformed by his wounds? Did you notice that Thomas, he doesn't even touch the wounds? Jesus says, come touch my wounds, and Thomas doesn't even have to touch them. Did you notice that? I mean, we read in verse 27 that Jesus says, come, Thomas, and touch my wounds, and we expect 20, verse 28 to say, and Thomas touched the wounds. And yet it says, and Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. What was it that transformed Thomas? 
It was the voice that called to him, the voice of love that said, do not be disbelieving, but believe. The same voice, love, that said, let there be light, and there was light. The same voice of love that said, Talitha Kumi, little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the little girl got up. Love came and said, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. Love said to the wind and the waves, peace be still. And the wind was calm. And the sea was still. And love said to Thomas, do not be disbelieving, but believe. And Thomas believed, my Lord and my God. Well, it's Sunday, and here you are, in the midst of the Lord's people, where the presence of the Lord is here. Do you hear him calling you? Do not be disbelieving, but believe. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.